Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S., with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, which now, with now 58 episodes, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base, and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for episode 63 of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest today is Bob Youngentop, co-founder and executive chairman of EYA, a now 30-year-old development company that develops for-sale townhouses and rental apartments, primarily in infill and transit-oriented locations in the DC area. Bob discusses his origins in Boston and then the DC area in his youth. He thought about being a professional photographer, yet was discouraged by his dad and started engineering studies at Lehigh, transitioning to economics before he graduated. He was recruited into the banking sector at Continental Illinois Bank in the early 1990s, and shortly after starting, realized that the bank he joined was about to fail, so he had to readjust his thinking. After doing workouts for a couple of years, he attended Harvard Business School and found his calling in real estate with a professor there 
and an internship at a JV between the JVG companies and Holiday Corporation here in Washington. While there, he met his eventual partner and mentor, Terry Aiken. He joined Holiday uh, Corporation full-time after business school and found the infill townhouse opportunity while there at Holiday. Together with Terry, they founded EYA to take advantage of that opportunity. He talks about the company's evolution and growth, including their capital sources, architectural thinking, and business philosophy, leading to the company's position today as one of the most innovative housing developers in the region. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Bob Youngentop. So, Bob Youngentop, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, John. So tell me what your current role is as executive chairman of EYA. How do you lead today relative to how you led when you started the company? And how's the company evolved from a big picture standpoint? There's uh, there's a lot baked into that question. Um, <laughs> I will start with my current role. So today, my new title is executive chairman. And when it was proposed to me, honestly, I didn't know exactly what an executive chairman does. I did some research <laughs> and I actually thought it uh, was was pretty appropriate. But I gave up the, the CEO uh, title back last fall. Prior to that, I was president and CEO that I, and I gave up the president's title now about two years ago to the next generation of leadership, which is led by McLean Quinn. So my, my current role is really to kind of stay away from some of the day-to-day issues that both McLean and our new COO, uh, Rafael Munez, are handling, and to really help be a mentor to McLean, to help him strategically, to help you know, with kind of the legacy of uh, what Terry and I you know, brought to EYA in terms of being cheerleaders, uh, supporting you know, the mission, you know, the the quality of design, the quality of the visions in the communities, but to do that from a higher level and not necessarily be involved in a lot of the day-to-day operating decisions. That role includes a, a, a basically an active leadership role on the investment committee, where because of, you know, mine and, and Terry Aiken's still uh, desire to continue to invest or co-invest on the EYA side with our partners, you know, we play that that kind of go, no-go, final decision on projects uh, still. And I'm actually still involved in, you know, being a lead developer on certain key projects that, you know, that I've gotten involved with. So in many ways, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest, you know, developer out there is that I still get to do the parts of the job that I love and have tried to evolve into into a good mentor. And at the same time, stay out, you know, in in projects that I have a, a passion for, and still provide kind of a visioning visioning expertise to to what we do. How has the company evolved? It's it's evolved, you know, honestly into I think, you know, away from a little bit of the entrepreneurial startup that we were when Terry and I started the company thirty years ago. This is actually our thirtieth anniversary. Thank you. It's been a wild ride. I never thought we would, you know, never even imagined that we would create a company that would be around for 30 years. And, and the reality is now I look ahead and, and think with this new leadership team that they'll be around for another 30 years at least. That's um, great. It, it is. And I, I think, you know, when I, when I think about accomplishments, I do believe that the, the process that was started when Terry retired about seven or eight years ago 
that kind of led a path for me to think about kind of the future. And we never really called it succession, but we really referred to it as sustainability. So it was a sustainability plan around leadership, a sustainability plan around long-term financing of the organization. It was really put in place, you know, five or six years ago. And you're now finally seeing, you know, kind of the complete evolution of that plan into new roles and uh, and new leadership. And I think, you know, having thought about it for a long time and been very intentional is probably one of our greatest successes as an organization to allow this company to kind of continue on its fashion. So the company has evolved, obviously, in a number of areas with regard to now a greater focus on multifamily development. Townhouses are still our kind of core business for sale towns, but you do see now a, a whole new focus on multifamily. We're actually exploring the idea of going outside of the Washington region, which we have never done before. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, with regard to how I lead today relative to how I led when I started, you know, when, when we started the company, and, and again, it wasn't me, it was me and Terry as a team, we both brought a balance. You know, I was the young you know, energetic, you know, MBA, you know, who was willing to work all hours and get into the detail of everything. Terry was, you know, almost 17 years, my senior, more experience, had the gray hair back then, and, you know, kind of brought a steady hand, you know, to the tiller. And I think, you know, my role has evolved more into that role. And it's incredibly rewarding to feel like, you know, I now I now have the experience that I didn't have back then, that I can lend and bring to, you know, to this younger, younger group, which I feel kind of has much of the energy and the passion that I had when we first started. I want to explore the relationship with Terry much more depth, but, and also the idea that he offered you full partnership with him at being 17 years your senior at that time, really interesting, is interesting to me that I want to learn, dive into a little more deeply as we get into the conversation. Great. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to go back to your your origins, if I could, Bob, and learn a little bit about your youth and parental influences. Uh, I understand you grew up in the DC area. Actually, actually not. I was born. I was born in Boston, and our All entire right. family, uh, my parents, my mother and father, are both the Bostonians originally. And it wasn't until I was um, 13 years old. Oh. That through a business opportunity for my dad, that he moved our family here to Washington. It feels like home. You know, I've been here now close to 50 years, you know, with stints away for college and working in business school and then eventually coming back here after business school. But home was originally Boston. I still have lots of relatives up there. I'm still a uh, Red Sox fan, even though I'm passionate <laughs> for the Nationals. So, you know, I can. Consider, I consider Boston home and Washington, you know, is the place that I've definitely grown up. I went to high school here. I was a graduate of Walt Whitman in 1978 and, you know, feel obviously a a tremendous allegiance to to Montgomery County and to, to the Washington area. Talk about your parents. What did your dad do? So my dad was my dad was in the life insurance business. Oh, um, you okay. know, started started you know as a salesman, and my dad is still alive today. He's incredible. I just spent some time with him down in Florida. He is going to be ninety one in August. That's great. Still plays golf. You know, probably two or three days a week. He plays bridge. Just you know, just engaged in a, in a variety of things that I think keep him young. I think one of his greatest influences on me has to do with an approach to life 
that, you know, I, I like to refer to as the cup is always half full. I mean, he always had one of the most positive attitudes of anybody I ever knew. He was nice to everybody and still is. And he got involved in his community in causes that he believed in and, and made a difference. And I, and I think, you know, those are attributes and lessons, you know, that I still, you know, take take to heart every single day. I, I think, you know, he, you know, this idea of having a positive attitude and, and believing, maybe sometimes people accuse me of being naive or a little Pollyannish, but, you know, I believe that things will work out. And and maybe it's, you know, it's it's the willingness to to make things work out or the desire to make things work out even when things are really tough and times are hard believing that it's going to be okay i think helps get you there and so that's something that i definitely take take from my dad you know the the, the struggles of being a life insurance salesman oh. and just you know oh, going yeah. door to door and you know trying to convince people to to buy something that you know they they don't want to hear about about, they don't want to think about, and then evolving that business into something that became a very sophisticated mm-hmm. health and benefits business is something that right. I really admire about my father. And, you know, he really helped me, you know, believe in myself that, you know, that anything's possible from a business standpoint. So just a, just a great, great influence and just a, an amazing man, somebody who I love spending time with today. My mother, in much the same way, you know, just I have a very close relationship with my mother. You know, she's the person, you know, when I've had a tough day still that I can just pick up the phone and talk to. And, you know, I, I, tr- I try to I try to talk to them, you know, that I feel very fortunate. I don't know, you know, how much time I have to be able to do that. So I do, I do believe that just maintaining those relationships and, and being there for them sets a great example for my relationships with my daughters. And so it's something that I really cherish. So I feel very, very grateful to have two great parents who really provided a great influence on me. You're very fortunate to be able to talk to them every day. You know, that's great. You have the time, make the time to do that. But I have a 94-year-old mother and I don't talk to her every day, just once a week or so. But, you know, she's still got her wits about her and that's great. You know, it's, it's awesome. It is. No, you're very, you're lucky. Very, we're lucky. We're lucky to have parents that exactly. uh, we can still talk to. So what are the influences when you were young? I mean, what kind of guided you towards real estate, if anything, at a young age? Or was it just kind of serendipitous that you got into the real estate sector, into real estate? Uh, loaded question, because I think it, it's, it's broad-based. So, you know, yeah. when I think about what it is that I love about real estate today, it's the fact that it's a combination of so many different skill sets. You know, there's the you know, the relationship side of the business. There's the you know there's the mathematical and economic side of the business. There's the operating side of the business, and then there's a very heavy, at least for me, creativity piece of the business. Exactly. And so, so when I go back to kind of my origins, you know, I. Some people know this about me, but I, I'm still a passionate photographer. I actually do yeah. some professional photography on the sports side for NBC Sports. And when I was in high school, I had a, a very close friend who introduced me to photography. And that really became my creative outlet, my ability to kind of see things differently than I think a lot of people see them. I took some mechanical drawing classes in high school, toyed with the idea potentially <clears throat> of going, going to school for architecture, never did follow that route. But it was all some of those foundations around the creative arts and visual side that 
that when I stumbled upon real estate, and I, I really could say that honestly, when I was at business school, it was the, the creativity and the business aspects that kind of came together that the light bulb went off and said, this is what I want to do uh, for the rest of my life. And I didn't start, start out that way. You know, I, I went to Lehigh after Whitman. And while mm-hmm. Lehigh is an engineering school and everybody says, right. oh, you must have been an engineer. I was actually only an engineer for about six weeks. Um, <laughs> honestly, I didn't have the, the discipline or the patience for chemistry. Mm-hmm. It was a required class, you know, even yes. for my civil engineering curriculum. And and I actually dropped out of the engineering program after about six weeks and ended up turning towards economics, towards a more liberal arts uh, degree, which, you know, turned out to be, uh, I think, a great thing. And while at Lehigh, you know, I became photo editor of the college newspaper and really, you know, kind of pursued the photography avenue. And when I graduated Lehigh, that was my real dream. I wanted to be a professional photographer. My dad actually talked me out of it. He said, you know, you can't really make a decent living as a photographer, you know, go get a real job. And while at the time, I might have resented that a little bit, you know, I looked back today and you know his advice was so well founded you know that that I could do both you know I could get a a, a real job quote unquote and then also get to explore my desire and my passion for photography and the arts after I got more established in my career after lehigh as an economics major there weren't a lot of jobs necessarily that were out there but there was a lehigh alumni that came recruiting to campus who was interviewing for jobs at commercial banks and I actually I did have some options in New York City after Lehigh, but I decided to follow this gentleman to Chicago. I was always a little bit of a uh, free spirit, may not maybe too strong of a word, but but I always kind of wanted to go my own way and kind of follow my own path. And all my friends were going to New York, and this particular Lehigh alumni worked for Continental Illinois sure. uh, in Chicago. I mean, yep. for those of people who remember Continental Illinois at the time. It was, I think, the eighth largest bank in the country. They had a great training program, and it was just different to kind of pack up my car. And and I drove out to Chicago with my dad, got an apartment, and started in the training program in the summer of 1982. And this was basically an 18-month training program where you did a variety of rotation, and then you were assigned into a regional office as a loan officer. Six weeks into the training program in the summer of 1982, the press, I woke up one morning and in the front page of the Chicago Tribune was uh, a story about Continental Bank making oil and gas loans through a, an affiliate in Oklahoma City to uh, a bunch of you know borrowers that basically almost took this bank under. Um, mm-hmm. All the loans went bad. Continental yep. was eventually taken over by the federal government. At the time, it was the, the largest national bank failure that, that the country had seen, even greater, I believe, than the Great Recession, given the size and the scale of the bank. And so it it was interesting, you know, I kind of scratched my head and said, you know, what did, what did I do here? Here I am, you know, in this training program, <laughs> I moved all the way to Chicago, and now I'm working for a company that's, you know, that's going under. But but as I as I tell a lot of people today, you know, like you're always faced with these choices. And, you know, whichever path you make, you make the best of that choice. There's no sure. right choice or wrong choice. You just pick one, and then you make the best of that opportunity. Well, for me, that might have been the greatest thing that I ever did was take the risk to go to Chicago, go to work for Continental Illinois. The Mm -hmm. bank failed. All the senior people started to leave the bank and all the junior folks had these opportunities 
to step into positions that they would otherwise never have had. And mm-hmm. so I was given tremendous responsibility now in the New York regional office after I completed the training program. And while I was in the New York regional office, I and I had been there now at the bank for two and a half years, almost three years, I was at the point thinking of what was next. And that's when I decided to apply to business school. Sure. And I applied to Harvard, not knowing at the time that they had written a whole series of cases on the bank collapse of continental Illinois. And they were HR (laughs) cases, they were finance cases, they were business cases. And so I only applied to one business school because I had another opportunity with one of my clients that I was seriously considering. And, you know, everybody goes through the debate of, is it worth going back to business school? Do you really need it? Do you just stay in the workforce? The opportunity cost of of leaving your, you know, leaving the employment, going back to school, costs you so much, is it worth it? But I decided to, you know, take a flyer, apply to Harvard. And, and you know, I was somewhat shocked when they accepted me, you know, being that I put all my eggs in one basket. And, you know, when I had the choice now between going to work for one of my clients or going to Harvard Business School, it was almost a no brainer. I mean, given that right. opportunity, I just couldn't say yep. no. And yep. I was, you know, I was ready for a break. And so, you know, after three years, I went back to business school, probably one of the greatest experiences for me ever in a lot of different ways. I was I met my wife there, who was a classmate. I learned that even though I went to Lehigh, that I was able to compete with, you know, all the, you know, bright people who went to Ivy League, Ivy League, yeah. Ivy League student mm-hmm. schools. And right. so it was a huge confidence builder for me. And it obviously changed the trajectory of, of my life, you know, through my a relationship with my, my wife, Linda, and the opportunity then to meet Terry and, and come out and get into real estate. So, you know, back to this question of why real estate, I, I listened to the Matt Kelly podcast, and I believe it was Matt who mentioned Bill Porvu, his inspiration for real estate. And that's something I didn't know Matt and I shared. But while at business school, Bill Porvu was a professor, as was Donald Brown. And I, I love this aspect of it because I was up at the Martha's, up at Martha's Vineyard last summer. And Terry Aiken is actually a bridge partner with Bill Porvu. And uh, so, <laughs> so I was visiting world. Terry and Terry and I went over to see Bill and I was able to share with him you know, kind of the story of how he inspired me. And my wife, who's also uh, a professor, was so encouraging, saying, that's what professors live for, to hear about how they they inspired students and how they, you know, help change their trajectory. And so um, I shared that with Bill. And, you know, he's, you know, he's in, I believe he's in his 90s now. And it was just so, like, it just felt so good to tell him, you know, how he impacted me and Mm -hmm. how I feel like through EYA, He's impacted, you know, thousands of people who live in the Washington region and all the people who have worked for EYA or, or benefited from, you know, the housing that we've built. It was really as a result of, of his inspiration and kind of lighting a spark in me about the, you know, the, the, what real estate, you know, what real estate can be. So that's how I, I first got introduced to it, you know, through the, through Harvard. And as I mentioned, you know, the, I did a summer in, I, I guess I didn't mention this, but I did a summer internship in between my first and second year at HPS, and it was with Trammell Crow in the DC office. Oh, sure. Um, Chris Roth was the managing partner of our office. And that was my first true introduction to a real estate experience. And it just, I fell in love. I I was like, it was, this is incredible. It combines all the things I loved about banking and economics and 
and deal making and you know incredible you know eco- you know economic opportunity and spreadsheets and you know just all the things that like I was excited about back then and then there was this creative piece that you actually got to sit down with a, mm-hmm. an architect and design right. something and that brought all the all the photography skills and the visual art skills to the table and I said okay this is it this is what I want to do and so I went back to business school and there wasn't a lot of real estate programming at Harvard. There was the classes that Bill taught. There were some entrepreneurial management classes. There sure. were some POM classes. And then they also had a field study program. And the field study program took private practitioners, basically people from, you know, the, from the real world who came and offered up a field study opportunity for, for students to work on. And you formed groups of three or four students and got together and uh, worked on a particular program. And so, Somehow, I don't know exactly how it happened. I ended up on a field study that was a combination of the JBG companies and the Holiday Corporation. Don Brown, who was also teaching real estate at Harvard at the time, uh, would fly up from Washington and teach a class or two and then go back to DC, help sponsor this, this field study. And the field study was around Holiday, which had a series of retirement homes. And this goes right. back, you know, I, I yeah. graduated Harvard in, you know, 19, went there, graduated in 1987. So it was, you know, basically in 1986, 87, this idea of expanding the Holiday Corporation's retirement home business and looking at, you know, what their facilities, how they operated and, and how you would expand this, this particular business and the proposal that it was going to be expanded by JBG and Holiday together. So that turned into my first job out of business school was going to work for a, um, a joint venture between Holiday and JBG. And mm-hmm. actually, my my it, you may not have known this, but my first office was actually uh, sitting uh, in an office right outside of Don Brown's office at wow. JBG. And I came okay. in about the same time that Rob Stewart came into JBG. Sure. Even though I wasn't working on JBG business. You know, I was I was having lunch and playing backgammon with Ben Jacobs, you know, in the conference room every day, <laughs> with the other JBG partners and just had a great introduction to uh, to real estate through that. Don, you know, was a huge mentor of mine. And at the same time, I got to work with Terry because of holidays, you know, focus on the retirement home business. So why? I don't understand the relationship between JBG and holiday. Was it a joint venture or how, how did that work? What, what, what were they doing so, at the time? So again, I, this was before my time, but it's my understanding that that Ben Jacobs was a mentor of Terry Akins. And oh, so Terry okay. and Ben had a great relationship. Terry was very close, as was Holiday in general, to a lot of the partners at JBG, the you know, the three original partners and the three junior partners that were kind of the, the basis of JBG. Terry had a great relationship. You know, they I think they saw the the merits of the holiday um business in retirement housing. At the time, you know, there was a huge buzz around retirement housing in general. And I think, you know, they saw the combination of JBG and Holiday as a way to expand Holiday's operating experience in that business. As it turned out, after about 18 months, I I basically talked myself out of a job uh, because I, I came to all the partners and said, I just don't see the opportunity Given you know a variety of issues both within Holiday and JBG, 
to really expand the business on a large scale. You know, we had done one new deal in that period of time. It was a rezoning effort in partnership with the Housing Opportunities Commission of Montgomery County. You know, the, the building actually got built. It's a beautiful facility that was at one point operated by Marriott right on Tuckerman Lane near the Grosvenor Metro. And that was my very first deal ever. But after we did that deal, I think there was some consternation between both sides about whether or not we could repeat this on a regular basis. And that was the goal was to bring scale to it. And so it basically said, I'm just not sure that everybody's heart was in it to to try to bring scale to the business. And so we decided to split up the joint venture. And I was actually given a choice at the time to either stay at JBG or to move to holiday on a full-time basis. And so, you know, again, I go back to these, you know, like forks in the road, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, which one do you choose? And, you know, when I look back on it, you know, staying at JBG might have been a great choice. Obviously, you know, I, I just have so much respect for, you know, Brian Coulter and, and Rob Stewart and some of the young folks when I was there that I was working with. And it was, it seemed so comfortable and probably would have been an incredible opportunity for me uh, to stay. But I, I, I got advice from, somebody who I really respect in the industry who since passed away, but Dick Dubin, who you may remember, um, was actually actually went to high school with my mother. And uh, Dick helped my wife and I find our first home and gave me advice on all things real estate. And so when, when I asked Dick about the choice and where I should go, he said to me, he said, you know, there's something about Wally Holiday being kind of, you know, a legend in true development. JBG, you know, was doing a fair amount of consulting development work at the time, fee development work, but Wally was, you know, kind of that historic, you know, old style, opportunistic Mm -hmm. developer, you know, taking raw ground and creating something from nothing. And I was very close to Terry and really loved our relationship. And I decided to go to Holiday. And, you know, at the time, you know, Holiday didn't really have any junior developers there were five kind of partner level people and I was I was the first young person to come in JBG was quite the opposite you know it had you know three senior level partners three next year partners and then a whole bunch of you know MBA types just like myself at the next tier so it was more comfortable at JBG in terms of structure familiarity you know I had been there for 18 months you know working in the office and again not unlike going to Chicago, I kind of rolled the dice saying, you know what, this is time to be a little bit different, take a chance, do something a little bit uh, maybe outside of my comfort zone and uh, decided to go to holiday. Um, I was there for another three and a half years and, you know, watching Mr. Holiday work and make investment decisions and, and lead a company was just incredibly inspiring and having the opportunity to work, you know, basically arm in arm with Terry was really the foundation for EYA. And Terry's just, you know, he's been my greatest mentor and, and friend and partner. And so having that time together, you know, I I never look back, you know, thinking what would it have been like. I just said that was the path I took, and it, it turned out to be an incredible thing for me, for him, and for my family. Were you doing housing from the get-go in your development career? Or were you doing um, other things as well? So Holiday was a little bit of everything. Holiday, right. was, you know, they had warehouses in Atlanta, retail mm-hmm. on the Rockville Pike. They had a master plan community in West Virginia. And Terry had started work on an assemblage 
of residential, single family residential property in the uh, Roslyn area, basically up on Colonial Terrace. And Mm -hmm. so one of the first assignments I had in in being completely at holiday was trying to complete this assemblage. And I went around knocking on doors Mm. of some of the elderly people that lived in the neighborhood. There were a couple of people who had invested and bought up you know, groups of these single family homes, but we had a number of outlots. And so, you know, over a number of months and a number of, you know, meetings in, in kitchens of people and explaining the vision and the story, we were able to put together basically the entire colonial terrace assemblage, which turned into Highgate. And that was my very first deal that I worked on with Terry. I oversaw kind of the the day-to-day operations of the marketing and the sales and the construction of this townhouse project in Roslyn. And so that was kind of the seeds of the business idea of EYA, the fact that you that there was demand for urban residential for in a townhouse form in a close in location and it was something that I just uh, fell in love with at the time. It was just like, wow, this is incredible. And so we did we did one more deal while we were at Holiday. It was referred to as Liongate. It was also in our in Arlington. Similar concept: townhouses on an urban site, a little bit further up, sixty six, you know, from Roslyn, but still very close into town. And um, that's where the you know the concept, the business idea, started to gel. Right around that time, you know, we were experiencing you know a, a pretty significant real estate recession in ninety and ninety one. And I think what Terry and I realized was that even with rising interest rates and, uh, you know, challenging economic conditions, there was demand for infill housing. And while we couldn't raise prices, we saw the absorption continue at a steady pace. (laughs) And in looking around, what we noticed was that there wasn't anybody else doing this. Nobody else was actually trying to recreate these urban neighborhoods. There were there were people like Larry Brandt and others who, you know, had done infill townhouse development very successfully, but most of the projects were slightly smaller, you know, the no, and then there were a lot of, you know, smaller mom and pop developers, you know, building, you know, 10 units at a time, but nobody was assembling large blocks of land to create, you know, 100 Whoa. unit neighborhoods or 150 unit neighborhoods. And I think that's where we saw the opportunity that that infill housing, you know, could absorb during difficult times. It was a so, great kind of downside yeah. protection. The home builders at the time were mostly greenfields, large tract, suburban, exurban developers, correct? They weren't yes. coming into the city at that point. I mean, the urban, you know, development as uh, mindset I think really kind of evolved. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this in the in the in the nineties, getting you know the early nineties. So before that, it was pretty suburban. It seemed to me in most housing growth in the eighties and seventies. Correct, but the 90s, um, seemed like it turned around in the nineties and into two thousands. So you know, back at that that point, you know, it was long before you know the terms of you know smart growth or right, walkability, right. you know, were yes. in everybody's. Uh, vocabulary. And, you know, for us, you know, infill was kind of an evolution of some of the multifamily development that Holiday had done, you know, the experiences that Terry had done. But it was also this, this idea that, you know, there, there was some downside protection to it, 
that there were there was a growing demographic of people who wanted to live closer in, and that mm-hmm. would protect you from the recessionary ups and downs um, of a lot of the suburban building. It also represented, I think, the place where eventually, you know, we really realized our value creation was, and that was on the development side of the business. That mm-hmm. you know, we none of the projects that we've ever done, you know, did we ever buy a piece of already entitled by right, you know, finished lot. Every single project that we've ever done was a re-entitlement, a creation of land value from some other perceived use, whether it be sure. an industrial use, an office use, or even a redensification of a residential use at a higher density, whether it be the single family homes on Colonial Terrace to, you know, which were done at, you know, maybe four or five units per acre, you know, to a townhouse density of 25 or 30 units per acre. So so every single deal that we did was around this idea that you could create value through the entitlement effort and through a rezoning or repositioning effort. And I think that's what kept most of the typical home builders out of the urban markets because the opportunities for scale required that development effort. Sure, right. the typical land developer wasn't doing it. They were buying farms further out, going through a development process, but really focusing on further out. They they went through the master plan process, typically, from what I've seen, with large tracts. So there was another layer there, but the infill is is tougher because you have the NIMBYs that you have to deal with there, which I, I think is... (laughs) <laughs> perhaps more challenging in some respects than just, you know, dividing up farmland and making well, it, uh, uh, su- and subdivisions it, out of it. And it wasn't, it wasn't just the NIMBYs because in many ways, you know, we, we were active before, you know, the concept of, of NIMBYism existed. You know, there's always okay. um, sure. a lot of scrutiny, you know, to, you know, to right. anything you're doing in close. But I think there was, there was also an education process, even for the, you know, and the local jurisdictions and mm-hmm. the politicians, you know, like why, sure. Why was there, you know, why was the density that we were proposing, you know, appropriate? Where was the opportunity? Why did it benefit, you know, the local jurisdiction? You know, mm-hmm. what was going to be the impact on services? You know, the trade-off between, you know, commercial ground and residential ground. You know, I, I, I honestly say that, you know, we didn't create this model. You know, I, I, I would use this in so many different zoning hearings. You know, there are so many examples going back thousands of years in Europe, you know, of, you know, town centers, you know, where, you know, there was a common piece of, you know, parkland or a square, you know, surrounded by higher density, well, you know, for sale housing or walk up residential. I mean, this has been, you know, this is history. Look at this Georgetown was, and Alexandria. Absolutely. You know, 18th I mean, century, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and it goes back before the 18th century, but you're right. Old Town Alexandria, Capitol Hill. I mean, this was the model of housing that was built hundreds of years ago in our country. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, the the move to suburbia, you know, the desire for the American dream of the single family house, people kind of lost touch with, you know, why living in close, you know, made so much sense. And, you know, that's where we saw an opportunity. There just weren't a lot of people doing it in the early 90s, you know, in, in a new way. And so, you know, we we thought there was a business opportunity there and we saw the success of it at Holiday. I think one of the keys to EYA was we wanted to focus. Holiday 
a you know was very opportunistic, was very successful doing a variety of property types. I guess for me, one of the things that that I felt strongly about is if you wanted to be good at something, you really had to to focus and bring energy to that specific aspect of 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 real estate. And so, you know, to me, it was specializing in this for sale concept. And and I'll tell you, you know, the for sale piece of it, you know, had we had capital, maybe we would have chosen to do more rental. But, you know, Terry came to the table with enough capital to get us started. I had nothing, I'll be honest. And, you know, he was incredibly generous with me. But the idea of doing for sale was a way to invest capital through third-party investors and return it quickly. Mm-hmm. And that allowed us to start to build capital within the EYA and within our ability to invest in, in projects alongside other investors. So it was to some degree it was, you know, the, the for sale business was a function of, you know, what we were coming from and how, you know, how we had nothing when we started. And it it turned into, you know, kind of who we became. So so you're more of a, a manufacturer of real estate, just as home builders are typically. Than a long-term holder of real estate, so you're, so, you're in the chur- basically the churn business. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that for the first you know the first twenty plus years of EYA, we were you know 100 percent that. Our evolution now is more probably a, a 70-30 split between still having the core townhouse business, but you know about right. 30 percent of our efforts is focused on uh, multifamily and you know longer term longer term asset holds. So getting back to you and Terry little bit. Talk about how your conversation about breaking away from holiday and starting the business and how that, I mean, you saw the market opportunity. What what germinated the idea? You know, I think we need to do this ourselves. I think we could do this. So. Yeah, so maybe about a year and a half prior to leaving holiday, you know, we had some initial discussions, you know, one of them maybe germinated from, from a, an issue I had at holiday around around marketing and trying to you know focus our marketing you know towards kind of a a current buyer profile and i was worried that i might have gotten fired over it but it turned out that i didn't get fired over it i kind of stuck it out and stuck around and as as we started to think about you know this business model we actually continued to look for more opportunities within holiday the recession was raging at the time and, you know, while we would have left right then, I think Terry and I both felt that we had to not only give Holiday the opportunity to advance this particular business concept, but also to help them with some troubled situations that that resulted from the recession. So we both worked very hard, Terry especially, on working to restructure some deals that he had been involved with and others in, in the holiday kind of portfolio. And so it was not till 18 months later that that we felt comfortable that things had stabilized and that we weren't just going to walk out the door. And so it was at that point, and Terry, I think, you know, he he blames me. He says it was my idea. I think I say it was his idea. But you know, we said, you know, there's a business opportunity here. Let's see if we can make a go of it. And Terry was willing to put um, some capital on the table that provided kind of a, a cushion for us um, in terms of a salary for a year or two, not knowing if we'd be able to find a deal or finance a deal or actually make a go of it. At the time, I really didn't have anything to lose. And, you know, my wife was supportive, and so you know we did it. I, I still um, in awe. I'm in awe of the fact that Terry was you know in his late 40s at the time, and I think back to you know when I was in my late 40s, you know at EYA, and I think would I have ever left to start a new entrepreneurial venture? 
Sure. There's probably no way I wouldn't have the energy or the the willingness to kind of start all over again. And I just give Terry so much credit. I mean, he is uh, passionate about real estate. And I think, you know, saw something maybe in me and in the opportunity that was a re-energizing opportunity for him. And so that's probably where it, where it came from. And I, and I do think I probably would never done it on my own. You know, I was probably too young and, and inexperienced uh, to do it. But the combination of the two sets of skills that we brought to the table, you know, my, you know, work ethic at the time and energy and passion to do whatever it took, you know, to be successful you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of hard work and his experience and a little bit of seed capital, you know, was really the key that allowed it to to happen. So to kind of sustain and grow your business, you found, uh, I understand, a partnership with the Westrike family. Talk about how that evolved. So it was actually our second financial relationship. Our first relationship was with was through CIG and Simon oh, sure. in North America. Um, John Abbott and uh, yes. Tom Krause, and yes. they, um, they helped us uh, raise, I believe it was $20 million for our very first project. And that was called Stonegate on 395 in kind of the Alexandria portion yes. um, of, of the West End of Alexandria. And so Stonegate was our, our very first deal. And, Isn't that uh, next to Park and Ford in that area there, just out, right out on King, straight off King Street? Yep, Route 7. Uh, where yes, I remember yep. that project. Yeah, um, sure. So that was our very first deal. And actually, Chris Lassard was our architect and introduced huh. us to the concept of the real loaded townhouse where, where he first saw it in California and brought it back here. We were, we were the first ones willing to you know, take a shot on it. And so you know, Chris was instrumental in our early success and ongoing success you know, from a design perspective and creativity. Okay. Around Explain product. what... Yeah, explain what that is, what you just said, that real loaded townhouse. The rear loaded townhouse. Rear loaded, okay. Yeah, the rear loaded townhouse was, you know, historically, most townhouses uh, that were being built at the time in Washington, the Washington region was a front loaded townhouse where you had a single car garage door next to right. a front stoop and a row of stairs and a small backyard. Occasionally, there were wider units with two car garages that, you know, huge front stair, you know, it's classic, uh, you know, NV Ryan, you know, product that you would see in the suburbs, you know, that everybody was doing incredibly successfully. And the rear loaded townhouse basically took the garage door and put it on the back of the house and loaded that garage from an alley. You eliminated the backyard and basically gave somebody a deck on the back of their house over the alley, but it sure. allowed the front of the house to go back to kind of the historic Capitol Hill or Old Town Alexandria streetscape. That wasn't mm -hmm. interrupted by curb cuts and front doors. Got it. And so it. it allowed you to achieve a little higher density and also create a much stronger walkable environment and streetscape. And so Stonegate was the first place that we introduced um, the idea of the, uh, the rear loaded garage. And it was successful, I have to assume. It, it was. It was successful, you know, in a variety of ways. I mean, I think, you know, it was successful in the entitlement process, especially in Alexandria, because you know, the idea of strong sidewalks and walkability within neighborhoods was something that they were used to from Old Town Alexandria. Now we were bringing that concept to the West End. So it was successful from a market standpoint. You know, the reality was we really didn't make any money on our very first deal. 
but it did help us, you know, build an infrastructure and hire some key people. All the all the profitability of the project went to the preferred return of the equity investor in this particular <laughs> case. So, you know, we laugh about it now. Terry did own a, a much larger chunk of the equity of the first project. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see much of that because it all went back to the investor, but it did, it did provide development fees that allowed us to hire, you know, construction expertise and some internal overhead that helped build the infrastructure for our next deal. And I think, you know, Terry and I laugh, you know, the second deal was a deal in old, in old town itself, right on the mm-hmm. waterfront called Rivergate. That was a property that was actually destined to be an office built. Somebody had actually driven in the piles along the river for the office grid itself, the mm-hmm. office market at the time was was not moving strongly and so it was offered up as a as an opportunity for sale we saw it as a potential to convert it to residential we had to figure out how to make the the piles that were driven into the ground work for for a residential structure and we actually i think a lot of our a lot of our naivety and in, in not fully understanding the complexities of construction or the challenges around land development work to our advantage because you know we listened to an engineer who helped us determine that you could actually create a map foundation across this uh, this pile grid we used to call it stonehenge using a geogrid textile fabric they actually used for the first time in vietnam to build roads through the rice paddies but you could drape you could drape these of these geotextile fabric over the piles and therefore create a a map foundation upon which we could then raise the soil back up to the existing grade and then build townhouses with spread footers across this map foundation. And again, wow. you know, if I think if I think about it now, it was way over my head from an engineering standpoint. And you know, we were naive enough to believe that it would work. And it did, but I'm not sure, you know, in today's world that that I would try that again. So that was project number two. And that's when we met Westfield to answer your original question. So we, when we decided to go into business, we figured we might be in business for a year, maybe two years. We were going to try to enjoy the experience. And so we set out to look for office space. And uh, this brings back such great memories. We toured a number of different office locations. And we ended up on one tour on the 27th floor of the USA Today building. Sure. Um, and it was a world class view. It looked out on the on the mall in Washington. I mean, you, you were front and center with the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument and the Capitol, looking down the river. And you know, we were I think we were maybe two thousand square feet, and so it was a little bit of a premium of, of rent. But we figured for two thousand square feet, paying a little premium, if we were only going to be in business for a few years, at least we could enjoy the view. And so we both kind of felt like that was worth it. It kind of helped us, you know, maybe with a little bit of credibility, having a nice, nice office that we could bring people to. And it tied into our business strategy where um, we actually put a little, a little piece of tape on the window uh, with the, with an arrow that was actually pointing to where you could see Stonegate out the window. And so <laughs> if you stood there at the window That's with the awesome. doors, and lined up the the arrow, you could actually see the Stonegate site out the window. That's great. And so we we joked that if you couldn't see the ground out the window of the 27th floor of the USA Today building, that it was too far out for us to actually want to pursue it. So it actually became an investment criteria as well. And, (laughs) And believe it or not, 
the West Ranks and the Westfield Partnership own the USA Today building. Sure. So, so the uh, the very first lease transaction that Anthony Westrike, uh, who's the son of Stanley, who since passed away, did was the EYA lease. And so, you know, through that, we developed a relationship with Anthony, with Stanley, with Jared Drescher, with Bill Brakefield, Tim Helmig, and the other folks today who make up Monday Properties and get started a 17-year relationship. You know, we were just, you know, two entrepreneurial developers. They had no residential development experience on their end. I shouldn't say they, they hadn't been doing any new residential development. They kind of took a liking to us. You know, we would have lunch occasionally with them. And at one point, they asked to see our, I think we actually presented the Rivergate opportunity to them. They passed on it. But then at that point, our third and fourth deals were deals that came through South Charles Realty. And uh, they were the redevelopment of uh, a site in Roslyn and then also a site in Courthouse Hill. We presented those situations to them and they said, we'll do them both. And at that point, um, they were all in. They said, you know, we want to do all your business. So please don't go to other investors. And it became just an incredible 17-year relationship where they were our sole equity partner and uh, just developed great friendships. And Stanley and Jared and Bill were great mentors to me and just uh, just cherish, cherish the history of that time that we worked together. So they decided to stay with their netting, which was office buildings primarily and commercial property, right? Correct. You, you then became their residential investment, you know vehicle in essence. Is that correct? Is that and I, I think I think they saw it as a, a wealth transfer tool uh, ah. where they could uh, transfer wealth to um, a next generation by investing, you know, through uh, capital loans into our partnerships. And it was actually all the next generation that actually owned the partnership interest in our deals. And so well um, the issue with the for sale housing of course is you've got you got to worry about tax taxes. So you know how, Maybe they had enough long-term situations they could offset the income from that, but it gave them a little more liquidity potentially. I don't know, but thinking about long-term investors investing in short-term churn type businesses. So, yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's clearly there's you know the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, I was always jealous, you know, of the long-term holds and you know right. the capital gains taxes that you know other real estate peers you know were were paying, but you know, we were generating cash. And so I was happy to pay taxes when we made money. I mean, I think that's, you know, one of the, you know, necessary, you know, fundamentals of our, of our, it is what it life, is. you know, and, sure. uh, exactly. and, and it was okay. And so, yeah, so we are um, happy to say we, you know, we paid taxes and that mm-hmm. was, that was all good. And I think, you know, for everybody who was investing in our businesses, in our projects, I think they were okay paying the taxes too. So, You'd said that most of your deals were zoning oriented, so you had to go find sites. So what was your criteria? I mean, you could go assemble old homes in a lot of areas. There had to have been certain criteria that you said, you know, this looks like a good area to do infill townhouse development. So what was your lens that you were looking through for deals, opportunities? So. So there were there were a number of lenses. I mean, there was clearly the focus on metro and public transportation opportunities. So, you know, if you look at kind of the development map today that shows, I think, you know, 50 or so projects, 
the majority of them are within close proximity to a metro station. You know, I mentioned, you know, initially, if you couldn't see it outside the office, outside the window of our office, it was too far out. That evolved to inside the beltway. So the next evolution was anything that was potentially inside the beltway kind of met the criteria, provided that it offered walkability. It had to have access to retail, to public transportation, and recreational amenities. And then eventually, uh, we started to look outside the beltway at employment centers. So Tyson's Corner, you know, even further out in the city of Rockville, wherever there were kind of employment hubs that offered those same type of walkable amenities, like transit, like recreation, like, you know, retail, those became what? the primary criteria. And then scale was important. You know, we just, we didn't want to do a, uh, you know, a one acre deal with 25 units, what we learned early on, it took as much effort, you know, and capital to go through an entitlement process, you know, for for one acre, as it did for 20 acres. And so the larger Mm -hmm. deals, the ability to create scale, and create a sense of place within a neighborhood was was really what we were looking for. We also, you know, we weren't scared of emerging locations either. You know, we were in the U Street corridor as the second kind of major project before U Street, you know, really saw its true revitalization. That was a deal on the old children's hospital site that we worked on. And it, I, I think, you know, we felt that, that these were emerging locations, but for sale, the buyer of a for sale unit was more willing to pioneer into some of these locations than a renter. A renter had you know, basically, you know, they had a year or two time horizon. And so if the there there wasn't going to be created within that one or two year period, they probably weren't as excited about being there where the for sale purchaser slash investor was willing to say, well, I'll go into an emerging location because I believe in five or six years, the neighborhood will change. It will evolve. And so they had a longer term horizon that um, that fueled the fire of that sales market that that maybe didn't fuel the, the rental opportunity in the short run until there was greater critical mass. That was also, I think, you know, a, a key for us to be willing to go into some of the emerging locations. Interesting. So at some point you formed a joint venture with with back with your old friends at JBG. Since CYA was a for sale residential firm, should I assume that that incentivized them to invest in your company as it deviated from their business plan for income property? Talk about that uh, evolution of the relationship. Sure. So basically, in you know, in the in the great real estate recession of you know the two thousand six, seven, and eight, you know, it was booming in six. You know, seven started to see the beginning of it by eight. You know, we were we were in a crash. You know, the folks at Westfield had been our partners for 17 years. Sure. Um, they the three senior partners were all getting a little bit older. They were kind of going in a little bit different directions. They had always made their decisions collectively, which is something that you know I really learned from the folks at Westfield that you know that that if they didn't agree unanimously, you know, a deal didn't get done. So they were they were a great model of a partnership that I just learned so much from. But as they as Stanley moved to California and Bill moved to Florida, Jared stayed local, there was there was less, I think, less excitement for them to want to continue to invest. And then the recession really was a, a huge, uh, huge impact on on all of us. You know, when the market crashed, you know, we had a lot of equity and a lot of debt outstanding. I think, you know, one of mine and Frank Connors, you know, who has been my partner 
since the very beginning, along with Terry. One of our greatest accomplishments, we say to this day, was that at the end of you know, kind of resolving all the issues, you know, we paid back every penny of equity to Westfield that was outstanding at the time, never asked a bank for a write-off on any aspect of any loan, and came out whole. It took us, you know, four or five years to see that eventually all wind down. But uh, Mm -hmm. Westfield was patient, and the the banks were cooperative, and, and everybody got out 100 cents on the dollar in the end. And that was um, something that I think both of us really feel proud of, you know, as we think back to, you know, the impact of that recession. And so when when Westfield decided at that point that they really didn't have the desire to continue to invest, we started talking to other potential investors. And, you know, Rob Stewart at the time was actually very interested in our business model. And the folks at JBG, given the history with me, given the history with Terry, saw it as a, an opportunity where they had been, you know, raising, you know, large amounts of money through a variety of investment funds that, that didn't prohibit them from doing a for sale. Some of their investors were actually pension funds that weren't paying taxes, I believe. And so there was less of a disincentive for the ordinary income aspect of it. And they started mm-hmm. to invest in our deals. And then for the basically the next 10 years until JBG became JBG Smith in the in the public transaction, they were our sole equity partner. And so we did a number of great projects. We actually have two that are still under construction with JBG today that were legacy assets. One, the Michigan Park down near Providence Hospital, and the other one is uh, Riggs Park Place, with the, which is down by the Fort Taunt Metro that will finish up in about, both will finish up in about 18 months. So there's still an ongoing relationship with JBG to this day. That, uh, so, that, so when they went public, then you had to find another partner. And so... I'd read recently formed a partnership with the Bernstein companies. A- we we did. And, you know, I, I guess for a lot of people, you know, the idea of having, you know, one partner for 17 years and one partner for 10 years. And now our relationship with uh, Josh and the folks at Bernstein Management has been now for about, I guess it's about four or five years. And uh-huh. we expect it. We expect and hope it'll go you know, for the next 25 years, some people would say that's crazy. You know, like part of part of real estate is going out and shopping for money for every project. This is probably, you know, something that, that Terry and I felt strongly about that, that we were not financial engineers. We right. didn't make, we didn't make our deals work by being able to save a hundred basis points on the financing of a particular structure, or a particular deal. We wanted our deals to work on the fundamentals of the real estate and the power of having an equity investor that was with you for the long run was a better long-term strategy from a conservative nature of if you went into a downturn, you know, would that partner be with you through good times and bad? But it was also something that you know, allowed us to focus our energy on the deal and the vision for the project and not spend time you know, running around chasing money. I think for the people that we purchased land from, it was a very valuable piece of the puzzle that we came to the table, not only with the credibility of EYA as being, you know, a a good development company to work with and a fair company and and was going to treat the company fairly and had a high degree of success or likelihood of success in an entitlement process. But we came to to the market to acquire land with a stable source of capital. So many people will chase a deal, put it in feasibility, and then tell the landowner they have to go out and find their capital. 
Well, sure. you know, we were coming to the table with capital, and I think that that helped us secure a lot of properties that yeah. we weren't dealing with financing contingencies. People saw the strength either in Westfield or JBG behind us, and uh, and felt that we were, you know, the combination of the capital and the entitlement expertise made us, you know, a, a good person or a good company to to entrust their their asset to. Because in many ways, you know, we were. We were a partner with the landowner, and that's the way we saw it. We were helping the landowner create value in property um, that may not, on the surface, have had the value that they would like to receive forward. You know, a great example is Boston Properties at Tower Oaks. You know, Ray Ritchie approached us, you know, with a piece of office ground, 700,000 feet of approved office that, Mm -hmm. you know, you could argue potentially had zero value. They had built an office building in Tower Oaks in a long time, didn't see the potential, but but felt that if you could convert it to residential, we could create value far in excess of what the existing office value was. And so it was that trust that they had in us to you know work over a four or five year process in the city of Rockville to convert that to residential. They had the confidence that that we would be there to close, that we could get it done. And and I, you know we we see those transactions as partnerships with the landowners. That's interesting. Yeah, another example that we were going to talk about a little later, but the one over at Rock Spring Park is another one that the uh, the old Rusty Bucket site that you then turned into a very beautiful project. Uh, How did that evolve? Was that with the Camelier family? Did you do that? Or was that with IBM or uh, how did that happen? Again, I guess just a, another another life lesson. It was actually uh, done with a, a business school fellow alumni, you know, from my class, you know, who I, I really didn't know well at the time. But and I, I'm going to go blank on the name of the investment company, but they were an out of town investment company, I believe, out of Minneapolis, and they owned this ground. I think they realized the same thing that they had purchased the two other office buildings, you know, in the adjacent sites. And realized that there probably wasn't the opportunity as vacancies were increasing within Rock Spring, and was looking for an opportunity to, you know, potentially exit and maximize value on this piece of property. It was being marketed by a broker. We got involved and suggested that there was an opportunity for conversion to re- residential. There was some loose language in the master plan for Rock Spring about mixed use, you know, working with, I believe it was Steve Robbins at Lurch yep. Early. We were able to create a story that park and planning, you know, bought into the idea of a 24-hour environment would help yep. revitalize the suburban office park there. And it's something that now you're seeing repeated over and over again in a number of locations. But this was probably the first, you know, large-scale conversion of a suburban office park in the area that was done. And, and again, you know, there were a lot of people that were very skeptical. You know, why would anybody want to live in a townhouse in the middle of an office park? And it turned out that I think if you go out there today, the the nature of the, the pedestrian walkways and things like that, I think did work. But now, you know, the Marriott site is being converted to uh, senior housing. So you're starting to see the evolution of that office park into a true mixed use um, environment, but Montgomery Row was kind of the first example of making it happen. And, and again, I think um, it was that combination of having capital in tow, but also and that was a JBG deal, but also having you know the confidence of the landowner to trust us as a local expert that we could go through this entitlement process. And I think having the confidence of the planners too, knowing you know the planners who knew us well, 
people in Montgomery County to, mm-hmm. to do the right thing by the property and to make it work, I think, helped in, in getting that through the whole process. It's interesting. It, it seems like your company has been at the cutting edge of a lot of change, you know, the infill, infill marketplace. I mean, I see the office market in this, in this city continually shrinking. And I think eventually it's going to become, you know, much higher balance, a more balanced residential development in, in traditionally urban office settings than, you know, than historic history has produced, especially in the DC area. I think people are just not going to come into the city like they used to. And this 24 seven or this, you know, this three day a week thing, I think is going to change our whole way of working which I think will have a, a real benefit to the residential marketplace long-term, frankly. Your well, thoughts? I can, well, I mean, clearly, you know, Council of Governments, you know, COG has you know, expressed the fact that there's a huge shortage of housing throughout this region. Population continues to grow. And so the demand for housing remains incredibly strong. I mean, I think, you know, COVID has obviously, you know, made office utilization you know, rates come into question and how much new office, additional office needs to be built. I think, you know, the, you know, the, the, the idea of people wanting to work in office that is close to transit, walkable, close to retail, you know, those office environments are more attractive to millennial workers. And so things that might have been built in suburban office parks or further out in the future in the past, you know, are, are seeing a useful life that, that may not be that long. And so, you know, as we continue to look for new opportunities. I mean, clearly the conversion of, of office ground or obviously office buildings continues to be something that, that we look at every single day. And, you know, we're working on another new project that's, you know, conversion of a car dealership property. So yep. there's this constant evolution of, you know, of properties that may have had a different use or a different purpose in the past that can be repositioned or repurposed in, in other ways. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, I think what you see all over old town Alexandria as well. So. Your website describes uh, several business lines that the firm has. I list them here, land acquisition entitlement. You talked about that master planning and architecture, home building, of course, apartment development now, and then property management. I'm curious if you have a property management division or are you outsourcing that at this point in your evolution? Um, we, yeah, we still outsource all of our multifamily property management. We've worked very closely with Pizzuto over the years. They, mm-hmm. they do a great job. They've been a great partner, a great development partner um, yep. with us on the kind of evolution of our multifamily uh, operations. You know, the master planning and architecture is primarily for our projects, we have, you know, and, and some people think that this is a new line of business for us. I think it was our, our third project down in Old Town Alexandria. We actually entitled a property and sold lots to Pulte mm-hmm. in Stonegate. One of the sections was actually built by Pulte Homes as well. So, so the idea of reducing risk by entitling a sure. large scale property and selling yep. off finished lots to a national builder is something that we've done now multiple times. You know, we see it kind of as a, you know, a continuation of our of our business model that there's mm-hmm. a huge shortage of lot huge shortage of lot inventory. We don't typically do it just to sell an entire site. We typically will do it, you know, to reduce the basis and the remaining land 
that we're going to build on or to to reduce risk in a in a project. So now on a number of occasions, we've led a master planning design and entitlement process, you know, by being the contract purchaser on a large scale site and then brought in a other partners like Pulte or Stanley Martin, Lennar, and others to, uh, to sure. actually build on lots that we've developed. So we do have a, a really strong land development operation. You know, where you know we we are our own general contractor on the townhouse vertical product. In the old days, we used to general be the general contractor on the land development operations. We've worked closely now with some of the larger uh, general contractors in the industry, Pleasance and Delmarva, to develop our sites. But we still see, you know, the, the benefits of being our own GC on the townhouse side. On the multifamily side, we typically work with third-party uh, general contractors. Have you thought about doing detached housing too, or are you going to stay in the in the townhouse sector? Mostly, well, we actually have uh, done some single-family uh, development mm-hmm. in Falls Grove in the city of Rockville. Sure, um, there was a 250-acre site that turned into a partnership between the Lerner Corporation, Pulte, and JPI at the time. We built some apartments. The Pulte yep. and EYA divided the for-sale product between townhouses and single families. There were some small-lot single-family homes, about 50 of them, I believe, at the time that uh, that EYA built as uh, as contractor, and we sold them. And now we actually have uh, a number of other sites that do have a small lot single family home component that we'll likely build ourselves. So we really see it as a continuation of our, you know, of our evolution, expanding our potential product lines and the places that we think we can add value. Mm-hmm. So going to the markets in more general fashion, how have you seen the evolution of land development, home building and apartment development in the region? And how do you see it generically at this point? And how it's going to go? It's it's definitely gotten more complicated. Obviously, far more costly today. You know, the entitlement process itself has gotten more complicated. There's more scrutiny of it, and at the same time, you know, there is a greater open from a political and a planning standpoint for increased density for walkability. I mean, you know, I think back to 1992, again, you know, walkability didn't exist necessarily as a terminology. Smart growth didn't exist. I think most of the jurisdictions recognize that some balanced growth is important and where that growth should be is in close proximity to public transit and other amenities, you know, to reduce traffic and to take advantage of, you know, existing infrastructure. So again, the the political side of the equation and the plan planning side of the equation has definitely, you know, come towards us, the demographics of, you know, empty nesters and millennials, people most attracted to urban housing has come towards us. I think, you know, where it does get challenging is in a number of the requirements. I mean, the environmental requirements have gotten more stringent. Stormwater management requirements have gotten more stringent, not only impacting hard costs, but also in limiting potential densities. So those are all trade-offs and challenges that I think, you know, we recognize are are critically important. It's just that they're different today than they were, you know, 15 and 20 years ago. You know, the demands on affordable housing, you know, the increases in inclusionary zoning, all things that EYA is a huge believer in. You know, we've partnered with a number of the local jurisdictions and their housing authorities on public-private partners with DCHA and Arha and Old Town. Mixed income housing is, you know, is part of our DNA. But, you know, in all aspects, you know, there, there is more being asked and expected of the development community. And, you know, we, we have found ways to, to meet those demands. But, you know, it, it, it comes at a cost 
And, you know, at some point you can't have everything, you know, if there's more affordable housing, you can't necessarily have less density, you know, if there's more stormwater management, you can't necessarily have more parkland. So it's all it's, you know, they're all trade offs. And I think, you know, the, the end result is, you know, it's, it's added to the cost of the for sale market rate housing in the form of helping to subsidize some of these other benefits. But on on balance today, I think we've found ways to make it work. And I think, you know, in, in conjunction with that, you know, even the landowner has to participate. And I think they have recognizing, you know, that that the demands on that property and an entitlement effort, you know, have some impact on the value of their ground as well. Sure. So what's challenging about this region is that every jurisdiction operates a little bit differently. The political process is a little bit differently, uh, different, you know, the fee structure, the entitlement timing, the, you know, it's all, you know, the, the impact fees. I mean, everything is different in every jurisdiction. And so, you know, you have brokers and others or landowners who think, you know, a property in one location is worth the same as it is in another location when they're looking at comps, but the entitlement process, the cost may be very different from one jurisdiction to another. So that's something that, you know, I think we, you know, struggle with at times. And I think, you know, for me, uh, you know, there's no place that we're uncomfortable working. You know, there are a lot of people that, you know, are intimidated sometimes by a process in the district or a process in, um, in Alexandria or Fairfax. But I think, you know, you know, even Montgomery County, I mean, we, we just have figured out a way to, you know, get comfortable with, with all of them and recognize they all have their different idiosyncrasies and cost structures. And, and, you know, we take that into account when we're trying to price property, because at the end of the day, the last thing we want to do is, is tie somebody up through a, you know, a two or three year entitlement and then not be able to close. And, and in fact, you know, I don't think there's, there's a single deal we've ever walked away from in that process. So we're very proud That's of great. it as well. That's great. So talk about your design philosophy a little bit. I recently toured a, a seniors oriented townhouse project with elevators, wide door openings, flat thresholds, and other handicap oriented amenities. Boomers are aging and perhaps need these amenities. Are you segmenting your projects to accommodate the demographic changes out there? Segmenting is an interesting word. I will tell you from the very, from the very beginning, one of our philosophies, and this goes back uh, to the one that stands out in my mind is uh, Ford's Landing down in Old Town in 1996. Um, we saw both a you know younger buyer and an empty nester buyer wanting to live in similar locations. They didn't want, at least you know, in our view, the empty nester. Most empty nesters, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but most of them don't want to see themselves in a segmented, older community. They want to be in a vibrant place that has both young people, older people, um, single people, married people. You know, they wanted just a, a vibrant community. That's why they wanted to be in the city. And so what we tried to do was to differentiate our target markets by square footage and size and amenities, but all within the same community. And so, you know, in the case of Ford's Landing, you know, we had units that were larger with elevators targeted at, you know, empty nesters, you know, for Mm -hmm. one to two times the price or one and a half to two times the price of a smaller unit right next door that was targeted Mm -hmm. at the millennial and then millennial didn't exist, but at the younger, young professional buyer who could afford, right. you know, far Yuppies. less than the empty nester. So yeah. yeah, exactly. So we, you know, so we've never segmented. We 
We like to think we created optionality. You know, our units, a lot of our units do have elevator potential today. It's hard to option elevators because it does have an impact on the site design and, and the unit design. So we typically will include elevators standard in certain models, but you have a choice between you know various models within a community of whether the elevator is important to you. And if it is important, then you would pick a certain product type or a certain home type. And if the elevator wasn't important and you were cost-driven, then there was a smaller square footage unit. But every one of our communities has really been designed to serve a very broad uh, spectrum of ages and income levels. Part of that was a risk management approach that we didn't want to get 100% focused on just one buyer segment and that having different price points and serving different uh, demographics was going to help the absorption of a particular job. Interesting. So how do you view uh, sustainability and ESG in general as a firm? You know, I'll be honest, it's not something that um, we had labeled ESG until fairly re- recently, like I think like the industry as a whole. I mean, we're, we're much more intentional today about trying to communicate and determine our ESG strengths and weaknesses and work towards making them better. I do think, though, going back, you know, even to the very beginning of the business concept, ESG from an environmental standpoint, we always were kind of on the forefront of because of the locations of the type of products that we were building. We wanted to work with low maintenance materials. We were always on the front end of uh, getting homes certified by the U.S. Green Building Council. So we were always looking for ways to make our homes more efficient, you know, recycling waste construction materials on site. You know, a lot of the things that, you know, you see in very scripted ESG philosophies and programs today, I think were part of, you know, who we were and what we were doing because of where we were. So I think our our job today is to be more descriptive of some of those philosophies and make it clear why those things, you know, were important to us back then and why they're still important to us. And and I think they clearly are become, you know, even more important, you know, using, you know, cutting edge stormwater management techniques, you know, being willing to, you know, kind of really make sure our buildings are environmentally uh, sound and continuing to build in locations. Uh, that focus on environmental sustainability. The social aspects of ESG, I think, have always been an important part of the core values of EYA, how we work with our subcontractors, our our employees or associates within the organization, how people are basically treated. That has always been kind of a core tenet of who we are. We wanted and still want everybody to feel like they've benefited, that they've won from EYA being part of a community, being um, associated with a, a, a landowner or a jurisdiction. The social benefits of the affordable housing and the mixed income housing that we do is something that we're incredibly proud of and see it as a, you know, as a huge component of, of who we are going forward. Um, even the community is where we work. I think, you know, most, you know, most community activists who have have been exposed to an EYA development process will will say, even though we may not agree on every issue at the end, uh, that we listen and that we actually will shape and modify projects and communities so that they really do blend in and fit in and be part of a community 
And that might be through architectural design. It may be through density, connectivity of streets, not gating any of our communities. I mean, in so many ways, you know, we want to listen. We want to be a part of the neighborhood. We want to be invited back into those neighborhoods. I think, you know, our, our, our work product and, and not only the finished housing, but also the experience that jurisdictions have had in working with us goes a long way to demonstrating that commitment. And then from a governance standpoint, I think, you know, the evolution of EYA's leadership team, if you look at, you know, the diversity that exists in our leadership team today, our emphasis on mentoring, you know, younger people, you know, of, of different backgrounds, you know, is really important to the organization. So we're making a concerted effort and always have to kind of to see us, you know, on the forefront of ESG, just like we think we've been on the forefront of, of urban housing as well. So it's it's really important to us. I think you will see continued work on how we communicate it and continued work on on how we can get better. And that's that's our goal. So it's definitely an important part of, of our future. So affordable housing, of course, is a major issue today, both in, in for sale and rental apartments. How do you see it being addressed and what is EYA doing to address that issue today? So I'll start on the on the true affordable side of the equation. So, sure. you know, we're not ones who will go into a jurisdiction and, and fight about inclusionary zoning. We've worked, you know, on various kind of task force, you know, with the district and other jurisdictions to help develop inclusionary zoning programs that work. And then, you know, we've worked with those same jurisdictions to implement not only you know MPDU style or ADU style housing, but workforce housing programs targeting you know everything from 50% of the median income up to 120% of the median income. So we're 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 very open and willing, and we typically in a lot of a lot of jurisdictions will exceed the affordable housing requirements in terms of percentages on the inclusionary zoning on you know on public housing, the segment that that's below 50%, basically, you know, zero to 50. Most of that work that we do comes in conjunction with a local housing authority, where we're working with the housing authority in partnership to redevelop public housing land. We've done that in Old Town with ARHA, where, you know, the way that works is through a combination of various funding sources, low-income housing tax credits, some grants, but also in densification of public housing property where you might have an older housing development, you know, developed at eight units per acre and, you know, through a redesign and redevelopment, pushing that to 30 units per acre. In the case of our work with ARHA, one third of the newer units were public housing, one third were workforce, and one third was market rate. So we did that also working That's with PCHA down near the baseball stadium. So, you know, we... We find it's just, you know, one of the things that we enjoy getting creative around. We have some expertise, not maybe not as much as some of the nonprofit housing providers are, you know, have on the on the tax credit side, but we've really, you know, tried to, you know, hire people with backgrounds um, in those areas so that we can be as as fluent in the affordable housing finance options as the nonprofits. And I think what we bring to the table on that front is the ability to actually create additional land value on the market rate units, which is providing a subsidy to the affordable ground. That's great. And be, being a kind of cutting edge market housing provider, you know, at least our experience is, is that the buyer who is 
buying a market rate unit for a million dollars next door to a public housing unit or a workforce unit. Today, they have a lot of confidence in buying from EYA given our history and our reputation. And so I think, you know, we're able to to generate greater market rate land value and then also have figured out as how to be as effective and efficient on some of the affordable components to make sure that we're maximizing the overall value to the jurisdiction and working with the housing authority. The other the other component of affordability that that has become a strategic focus of ours, you know, I think like a lot of people, we got caught up, you know, five and 10 years ago in, you know, building the next million dollar townhouse. And one of our strategic objectives that we focused on starting about five or six years ago was to find more attainable market rate housing opportunities. And so what historically where those came from was looking at some of the emerging locations where maybe the land values hadn't appreciated as they had in some of the really higher and market locations. And so, you know, we were able to put a piece of property under contract that's currently for sale along Route 50 in uh, Fairfax County, just outside of Arlington, that at the old Lomans Plaza, where we're building about 180 townhouses, where they're targeted at a, um, you know, millennial buyer at kind of entry level housing point, point price points, you know, in the 600s, as opposed to, you know, million dollar price points. And we've done that through uh, smaller unit sizes and again, you know, emerging locations still with the same, you know, attention to detail and architecture and amenities that we bring to the very high end neighborhoods. But, but that is something that you'll continue to see, can continue to see us do more of. And that's also the case at Riggs Park Place at Fort Top Metro, where the attainability price point, you know, for that first time buyer was something that we were really focused on. But there's no, there's no subsidy involved in that. It's really just, you know, you know, looking at the entitlement, looking at the the product design, and, tr- and and where the site is, and the acquisition price that allows you to bring those homes in for a much more attainable price point. That's great. So let's shift a little bit to your company. Regarding your company, what what do you look for in prospective employees? It's a great question. You know, I'm I'm not personally involved in you know the day to day hiring decisions anymore. But I can tell you, you know, as I tried to build, you know, the EYA team that's in leadership today, you know, the number one thing for me was a consistency to core values and style. It was not, you know, necessarily how smart you were or um, how aggressive you were, but, you know, how consistent are you with the core values of what EYA has kind of embraced and has made us successful over the years. And those core values are around, you know, integrity and and honesty and humility and just doing business in a way that, you know, you would want somebody to do business with you, you know, to treat you fairly, respectfully, you know, to make sure you are getting a, a fair uh, a fair side of the bargain. And, you know, it's not a winner-take-all philosophy. And, you know, a lot of that, you know, comes from, you know, the teachings of Terry Aiken back to the beginning that, you know, you, you never, you never got a deal if you didn't agree and find common ground with the other side. And so, you know, I think, you know, making sure that people really understand that and that there has to be common ground on all. And, you know, we want, we want people to work hard and to be passionate, but, you know, and to believe, you know, believe in the mission of what we do, but we want them to do it in a, in a certain style and way. And I think, 
our leadership today just, you know, probably gets it even better than I did. So, you know, that's, that's what I looked for. And I think our, our people today, as they're going through the hiring process, probably, you know, also uh, carry that, uh, that same philosophy going forward. So you've, you've developed a, a new uh, management team now, apparently, over the last few years. And so you have a, you know, a more distinct organizational structure that you had when the entrepreneurial thing. So has that helped you in your, in your looking at, at growth potential and opportunity? And has it also helped you in mitigating risk and opportunities going forward as well? You know, it, it, in many ways, I mean, it's, I think it's, it's the same structure and the same philosophies around management and compensation. I mean, you know, we, we want all of our, partners and you know senior leaders to feel like owners in the organization mm-hmm. um, that's the way they're compensated they share in the the promote interests of projects so you know they're not you know our land acquisition folks you know you don't eat what you kill I mean you share equally across all the deals that people are working on so there's a very collaborative work environment and culture throughout the organization. And I, and I think in many ways, you know, the, the new leadership team, again, you know, kind of uh, takes that to the next level. So I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it's really changed. I think it's just, you know, gotten reinforced. And, you know, when it's, you know, when it was just Terry and I, you know, preaching those things or trying to implement, you know, it, it went a long way. But now when you have a group of, of seven owners of EYA and leadership you know, kind of preaching and acting on those same philosophies, it just becomes that much stronger. And yes, do I think, you know, it does mitigate risk. It does, you know, there's greater bench strength, you know, there's, you know, new energy and new ideas that are brought to the table. So with with the same kind of stewardship, you know, that that comes from having my involvement and Frank's involvement, and, and even Terry's involvement on the investment side, even though he's you know, tired in terms of how we look at, you know, new deal opportunities and new potential. So, so it's, it's the best of the new with a little bit of the guidance and wisdom of the old. I, I asked you to listen to a speech by a fellow by the name of Peter Kaufman, who formed a company out in California called Glen Air. He's an engineer and he's a, he's a disciple of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway fame. And his speech is called The Multidisciplinary Approach to Thinking, which I think is some very interesting insights on dealing with information and approach to, th- to thought as well as in dealing with people. And I wanted to get your uh, insight, your thoughts after listening to that. Uh, and I'm going to share this on the show notes, by the way, the link to this speech. Great. Yeah, John, thank you for sharing it with me. You know, I love to hear and learn, you know, different business philosophies that are out there. And, and really, I think Peter's philosophy is more about a life philosophy, not necessarily yes. even, even an approach to business. And I think, I think what I took away from, you know, from Peter's talk were, were two really important, I think, elements for me. You know, at the end, he does talk about, you know, making people feel like owners. So mm-hmm. they think like owners of business decisions. And I think that's something, again, that you know, Terry Aiken did with me very early on in my career and then kind of carried on to the philosophy of EYA with all of our senior leaders. The other thing that I think that, that Peter speaks about is this idea of, you know, of go first, where he talks about some statistical analysis about people's acceptance and willing to be kind or be nice or to be open 
to another person's, you know, entree or approach to you. And I think a lot of people, you know, are are hesitant to, you know, introduce themselves or to take the first move for fear of how the other person might react. And Peter says that, you know, the reality is, I, I think it's, I forget if it's 90 or 95% of people when you approach them will actually be nice. It's the very small right. percentage that will, you know, turn you off or go the other way or, or treat you disrespectfully. And, and I, I think he's 100% right. I think, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, the willingness to take a risk, you know, in business, or the willingness to take a risk in a relationship or building a relationship, I think the benefits and the odds of it being successful are far greater than Absolutely. The fear or the risk of it not being successful. And I think it's it's a really powerful philosophy to live by that it's okay just to take a chance and you know reach your hand out and say hello to somebody and you know and Absolutely. open yourself up to the opportunity that comes to comes with a new relationship or, you know, a, a discussion with somebody that you may not know. I think it's, uh, it was really powerful. And so I, I really enjoyed it. I encourage everybody right. to, to listen because there's, there's always something you'll learn in there. I, I think, you know, I think I may have mentioned this to you that um, I'm a huge disciple of uh, Bill Collins and good, and good to great. And I think in many ways, you know, if you look back to the um, very original EYA business plan, there were a lot of, it's actually Bill Collins, it's Jim Collins, I apologize, Jim Collins, you know, our very first business plan. Actually, if you read it today, you would see so much of what EYA is today. The idea of, you know, getting the right people on the bus, leading with, you know, human style, you know, treating people the way you would want to be treated, and then trying to find one thing that you do well and just keep doing it over and over again. You know that is you know what good to great is all about, and I think that is you know, something that turn, turn the flywheel too. Turn the flywheel, as he calls it, which is yep. getting started is really slow, but then once you get going, it just kind of accelerates. And yep. uh, and it's it's so easy, you know, in real estate to you know try to do different things, and you know there's so many different uh, opportunities out there, but you know keeping that focus and you know, becoming the best in one particular aspect, I think has been, you know, a huge key to, to EYA's longevity. That's great. So let's shift to your personal life a little bit, uh, Bob. What, what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Great question. You know, I, I'm, you know, at a, at a stage in my career and my life where, you know, I've been able to kind of shift time priorities where, you know, at the beginning of EYA, you know, maybe EYA represented, you know, 80% of my hours, you know, I had young kids, and I spent as much time as I could, you know, being there for them and for my family for, for work, I mean, for, you know, school events and activities. But today, you know, EYA probably represents, you know, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40% of my, you know, waking hours in terms of time allocation, I spend a lot of time, you know, with my family and my adult children, you know, kind of supporting, you know, kind of their wishes and dreams and doing fun things together, whether it's traveling or, you know, being together. I've always felt that giving back is an important part of like a full life. And so, you know, I've had the good fortune um, to be involved in a number of community activities, either through my synagogue or my kids' school, where, where actually the expertise, you know, that I've developed through real estate, I've been able to apply to, you know, projects like, you know, building new buildings, you know, on school sites or on my synagogue's property, where, you know, again, the real estate background has been helpful 
in providing, you know, an opportunity to give back in those communities that I'm involved with. More recently, through my wife's energy and focus, and she was a professor, business professor at Montgomery College, and then also the CEO of College Tracks, which supports first-generation college students coming out of Montgomery County High Schools going to college. I've gotten involved in the university universities of Shady Grove, which is a, a part of the University of Maryland education system basically providing educational opportunities and workforce pathways to less advantaged students in Montgomery County, you know, not only first-time students, but also, you know, older residents, you know, who want to go back and be, you know, and have the opportunities for additional education and and retraining and things like that. So universities of, of SU, universities of USG has become kind of my current focus and passion from an education standpoint. And, you know, also the affordable housing piece is something that, that I really think that I have skills and opportunity to, to make a difference in. You know, over the years, I've been very involved in the Urban Land Institute here in Washington, our district council. You know, I think, you know, helping younger real estate professionals, you know, to have opportunities to network and uh, learn, you know, from people who, you know, have had more years of experience to help them develop their careers is an important part of, you know, what I'm doing and what I want to do as I go forward, as well as to help, you know, continue to mentor the leadership of EYA. So, you know, I just, I I have a very full life and I just, you know, couldn't be more grateful for the opportunities that EYA has helped create for me. You mentioned earlier that you also do sports photography. Talk about the evolution of uh, your photography. Uh, your photography career and interest in general. Sure. I think I mentioned, you know, that I learned photography from one of my high school best friends, went on to become the photo editor of my college newspaper, had a dream of being a professional photographer coming out of college. My dad kind of talked me out of it. And then, you know, I always, I always continued to, to stay focused on it as a hobby you know, I was the guy on the sidelines of all my kids' uh, sports events, you know, with the uh, the nice camera taking, you know, sports photographs of them. And I, I eventually started doing it for friends, children as well. And through that, I, you know, got an opportunity to shoot for some of the Washington sports teams for, at the time, it was home team sports. And that was back in 2008. And that that has evolved into a very robust commitment to NBC Sports, where I do cover many of the local sports teams on a, a annual basis. You know, for their local presence on NBC Sports Washington, which is their local web presence. Potentially seeing that winding down a little bit. You know, I did mostly uh, the football season this past year. You know, there was a time. You know, I, I it was an incredible escape during the the stresses of the recession to be able to, you know, work hard all day and then just go out and photograph a Caps game or a Wizards game. You know, I think, you know, those those days of, you know, literally, you know, working full time, you know, every single day and then shooting two or three events a week are, <laughs> are behind me. Just physically yeah. it's exhausting. But it's been a it's been a great opportunity to make relationships with a lot of the other professional uh, photographers in the region, folks at Getty Images and USA Today Sports and the Washington Post. I mean they've They've really embraced me and my passion for it, and they've a lot of them have become good friends. And so, you know, I feel like I've gotten the best of both worlds. You know, the ability to have an incredibly fulfilling real estate career, and then also 
you know, live my dream of being a professional sports photographer. And so, you know, one day I hope to actually maybe have a photography show in a gallery someday where I can display some of my work I'm most proud of. But I still, when I travel on vacation, I still love to take pictures. I just, I was out in California for a month this winter and with my daughter and my wife, we went to uh, Death Valley, which was one of the most photographic um, experiences that I had ever seen. And, you know, even to this day, you know, I felt like I took some of the best pictures I've ever taken in my life back in, in February of this year. So I love, you know, the creativity, kind of the continuous learning of it. I just was able to purchase the new, uh, Nikon Z9, which is their new digital camera. So just the Mm -hmm. whole, you know, learning process of learning the two new technology of, of a mirrorless camera and being able to apply that and things I love. So it's just a great creative outlet. And I just, you know, look forward to, you know, years more exploring the, the realms of, of photography. Well, if you have a catalog of four or five shots that you want to share, I could post it on the show notes if people want to want to watch look, look at them. If you'd be willing to share them with me, sure, some, can, some of your like, favorite some of your favorite shots. I'm that'd be kind of cool. That'd be kind of fun. fun. Happy, happy to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. So I saw you at Wolf Trap. Probably was it three summers ago, maybe uh, at a Dark Star Orchestra concert. You were in the pit. You had you had you know a Grateful Dead tie dye shirt on. So I gathered you were a deadhead. Did you ever play an instrument as a kid? I mean, was music at so, so I think I played played the clarinet, you know, back in elementary school. Okay. Um, not ver- not very well. There's no clarinet in the Grateful Dead, unfortunately. No. Um, one of one of my COVID bucket list items was to finally learn how to play the guitar, which I uh-huh. have not done yet. So no, <laughs> I, I technically do not play an instrument, but I do love I love music. I love live music. I enjoy the experience of music festivals, and I am passionate about the Grateful Dead. And I had the great, I had the great fortune of being with my uh, closest friend from Lehigh at three Dead and Company shows out in California last October huh. at the wow. Hollywood Bowl. And so, you know, I find it find it just an incredible, you know, escape. You know, to to listen to good music and to just you know, enjoy the surroundings and the people, you know, of a, of a concert. And it's one of the things I've missed a lot of, you know, during uh, COVID. As you may recall, for EYA's 20th anniversary 10 years ago, we had an incredible party where Dark Star Orchestra was the, the entertainment. Oh. You know, oh. I was able to share my passion for the Grateful Dead with, with all the people that have helped EYA over the years. And uh, we're excited coming up on our 30th anniversary, hopefully to do another big event with some live music it won't be dark star though i think with all the new leadership i've uh, expanded my musical tastes uh, beyond just the Grateful Dead. so we're, we're excited about that that's awesome so if you looking back at your career what were your biggest wins losses and most surprising events that you had that you can think of you know it's it's a great question i mean i think my my biggest win was you know finding Terry and Terry finding me, you know, that relationship, you know, the time that we spent together, the the highs and the lows, the successes, not a ton of failure. I mean, because I don't look at any of the, you know, any of the struggles as necessarily failures. I look at them as lessons. But that relationship is probably my biggest win. You know, I, I don't know what he saw in me, but, you know, it was something that, that I think changed the trajectory of, you know, of my life and the opportunity to, you know, work, you know, together and create something like EYA, you know, was just probably the, the 
biggest gift, you know, that I could have ever, ever have dreamed of. And it was probably bigger than something I could have ever dreamed of when, you know, I was either in school or, or starting my career. So that, that's definitely the biggest win. Like I said, there are no, no real losses. I mean, have we lost money on projects? Absolutely. I mean, we got killed in Hyattsville, but I drive through there today and I, I see the transformation that took place. You know, it was a great lesson that we were just ahead of our time in an emerging right. market. But mm-hmm. I look at, you know, the way that the, the community enjoys that neighborhood today. And I think, you know, it's not a loss at all. It's, it's a win for that neighborhood and, and a great lesson for, for me and for you know, future EYA projects, most surprising events in my career, you know, again, you know, I come back to, you know, the, the, the paths, right. The surprise of waking up to find continental Illinois, you know, in, in the, in the going in the tank yeah. and being yeah. taken over by the federal government. That was yes. a huge surprise. But, yeah. but I think, you know, as I said, you know, that paved the way for, sure access and entree into Harvard Business School that allowed me to meet my wife, that allowed me to meet Terry. So it was a surprise. And and again, it's just, it's a fork in the road that you just go down and you make the best of that opportunity, whatever it turns out to be. Yeah. So with that thought process, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? This one's easy. Never build condominiums. Uh, so, you know, you know, there's something there's something about the townhouse business that, you know, while it still has some of the risks of condos, there's something about the nature of condominiums that I think just, you know, are are not fun that encourage, you know, fighting between condominium boards and developers that just can be incredibly painful, you know, and and we did have a very difficult situation on one project that is now settled and resolved, but you know, in the category of life is too short, I wish I had known. And I, and I heard people say it, but I, I didn't really believe it. But I would tell my 25-year-old self, never build a condominium. So. <laughs> okay. Well, it just seems to me that townhouses, because they are communities, is similar to condominiums in, some, in the way they're divvied up. But it's more of a homeowners association as opposed to the pure condominium board. So... There's a technical Correct. difference there. <laughs> there, there, is, there. There is a subtlety not to get bogged down in the in the legality yes. of the subtlety. Right. But you know, when you're dealing with homeowners, I mean you're dealing with an individual homeowner, when you're dealing with a condominium, you know, you're dealing with a condominium association, right. the surrounds right. of the entire building. You know, there are yep. other risks around, you know, mm-hmm. the ability to phase townhouse construction versus the completion of a condo. So just, you know, it's just, you know, one, one thing I think about, you know, when I saw the question about, you know, what would I, what advice I that it. would probably be the single most advice. Great. Everything else, you know, as far as other advice, I'd say just, just go for it. You know, that, you know, you never know where paths are going to take you and just make the most of every opportunity that you're given. And, you know, there's no right choice or wrong, wrong choice. You know, the, the right choice is the one you take. And you'll make that correct by, you know, by working hard and, you know, and, and making the most of that opportunity. Great. So my final question, I ask almost every guest that I have, if you could post a statement on a billboard of the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? This one is, I think, somewhat easy. I, I would want it to be big and very short so people would see it and it would resonate with them. But it's, it's just two words, and that's be kind. B-E-K-I-N-D. And mm-hmm. I think there, there are too many, I don't know, instances in this world 
where people are just not kind. And, and maybe it goes back to Peter Kaufman's, you know, talk that, you know, the ability to, to be kind, to be nice, we sometimes lose sight of, we get caught up in the emotion of situations. And I think the world would be a better place if they just saw that reminder, you know, every time you think about, you know, I don't know, you know, getting angry at the driver next to you, or, you know, getting frustrated with somebody in front of you in line, or, you know, an argument, you know, or discussion with somebody, just, you know, the idea of living by being kind, I think we would all benefit from and the world would be a better place. So if if that was the one chance to kind of send that message, I just put it up there and let people drive by it, and have them just pause and say, well, you know, how can I act on that? every single day so anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up bob no i just say john thank you for the opportunity uh, uh to kind of share my story you know i i don't think about the history all that often but you know we, we all learn from our past and as i sit here today and reflect back on you know so many of the decisions and you know early parts of eya and kind of where we are today you know i, I just uh, feel so grateful you know, to be able to share the story and hopefully inspire other people to to take a chance, you know, to find a mentor, to, to you know, find a partner like Terry that can help, you know, change, you know, change lives and, and then give, you know, young people a chance to kind of have that same opportunity. And I think um, that's been, you know, a huge, huge part of, of who we are today. So this has been a great, you know, great fun to kind of talk to you and answer the questions. And, you know, I hope I hope people find it interesting, enjoyable to, to listen to. So appreciate your, your coming on. And I really appreciate it. It was a great interview. Take care. Thanks. Take care, John. So we just listened to Bob Young and Tob, of e, founder of EYA, who is a forward thinking partnership-oriented guy who had an interesting background and evolving from thinking about engineering initially, but going into economics and then interning in the real estate sector with JVG companies, which really influenced him considerably, obviously, in his youth. So as I normally do, bringing in my colleague, Colin Madden. Colin, welcome. Hey, John. Good to be here again. I thought this was another interesting podcast. I thought his background was pretty pretty interesting. His musical interests, his photography interests, you know, the engineering aspect, uh, the Harvard Business School. So I thought his, his upbringing and background was unique, if, if you will. And I think that le- leads to maybe some of his, his success. I know you wanted to get into the partnerships at EYA and how that was an integral piece of their business model. So just wanted to give you the, the floor to provide your, your take on, on their partnerships and, and their relationships. Yeah, that's uh, an important aspect of the, of the history of the firm. I mean, he started with JBG and Holiday Joint Venture coming you know, as an intern while he was in Harvard Business School, saw how that partnership evolved. And then obviously they philosophically had some changes and differences and he decided to had to decide whether to go one way or the other and went with the holiday corporation because of one of his advisors told him that he was more of a development oriented firm which is interesting in retrospect because <laughs> <laughs> the jbg is one of the largest developers in the city and holiday of course has done it and continues doing it but they're a much smaller scale developer and but you know that doesn't matter because that ends up steering Bob's career. But 
the big key partner he found was Terry Aiken, and he goes back to talking about Terry all along. The E of EYA is Terry Aiken, and of course, he's Y. And the two of them came together while at Holiday, and he was just, that was his, his mentor, and still is his mentor to this day, even saying that he was 17 years older than, than him, Terry is, and mm-hmm. being in the willingness to, in his late 40s, to start a new company, what he thought was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. His mentor did that. And, and then taking him along as an equal partner, I asked that question. You know, that says a lot about Terry's willingness and understanding of Bob's capabilities at a young age to take on an equal partnership like that. And, and you know, why just the two of them? They, yeah, I asked that question. You know, he could have had more than one. Well, it just worked out that way. And then uh, they brought in Frank Connors, who's the CFO, early on didn't bring him to full partnership at that mm-hmm. time. So it was an interesting evolution. And now they have like seven or eight partners at the at the company as they've grown, but they've they've kind of modeled the partnership thing more or less in in concert with what the JBG companies have, have done over the years and thinking along the lines of that. So you know he said Terry Aiken was mentored by uh, Ben Jacobs who was the mm-hmm. founder of JBG. So mm-hmm. it could tell, it, you know, that whole partnership model really comes from the, the JBG thought process, I think, originally. Yeah. yeah, you could tell he really cared about that relationship with Terry and his mentorship. He brought it up a number of times and you could definitely tell he had strong, favorable feelings with that, with that relationship. So it was interesting to hear that. So EY is certainly a forward-thinking and innovative company. They've developed a number of sites that maybe others wouldn't have or wouldn't have thought to develop in, in the way that they did. I think one example he did was doing the first backloaded townhouse development project in the area. And I, I think that was an idea that came from an architect in California. Just wanted to get your take on on this strategy, how they are forward thinking. Where do you think it'll go from here? Uh, well, it's interesting. You know, it, You might think it's innovative, that mm-hmm. process, but if you've just drive around, uh, go down to Georgetown and go to Old Town Alexandria. Mm-hmm. You don't have garages on those townhouses mm-hmm. because cars didn't exist when they were built. <laughs> so, so what? How they park those? They have alleys. Yeah, and so they basically, you know, it was just a, an old idea re- revitalized. That why why not just you know model after existing older older towns. Another example is Brooklyn, New York. I mean, my son mm-hmm. lived there. You go to Brooklyn, you park on the street. And in some cases, I think they have alleys there. So alleys are a big part of it. And people, so they backload the parking and have a deck over the, that. Now, in his case, they don't have alleys necessarily, but they just, you know, they have maybe streets lined up so that it allows for rear loaded parking mm-hmm. uh, set up, you know, it, it just depends on the community and the way the site lays out, I imagine. But yes, Chris Lazard basically took an old idea and, and re, re-engineered it for, for newer development and making it complementary. And the other thing they try to do is to make the architecture complementary with its surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of infill townhouse development. So it's really an old idea that you know, in the 1990s, everybody was building out 
in exurbia and greenfields with townhouses and how and, sing, and single family residential communities because that was the growth of our thought process but then in the 1990s the urban TOD philosophy took took place and young younger people then wanted to live closer in yeah when i was growing up everybody was you know wanted to be out in the suburbs and further away from the urban mess yeah and now you know because of the riots and everything that happened back in the 1960s and then all of a sudden people looked at the city and said oh wait a minute we like it there we like the density we like the shopping we like the walkability we like mm-hmm. this so it all came back <clears throat> so it's a, it's a and and they saw that and said you know nobody else is quite doing this now so we're going to we're going to try and find locations to make it happen mm-hmm. so they did so where do you if you're thinking outside the box, where do you think walkable cities will go next? Do you think there'll be like super micro communities of a thousand people? And I bring this up because I was, I met this guy and like, I'll probably get made fun of this for this, but a crypto community. And he's working on like a walkable city that's decentralized ownership. I think the idea is interesting, but also hearing Bob talk about all the headaches involved with, you know, condo associations and even, even just homeowners associations. When you when you take a decentralized ownership of an entire city, even though it might be only like a thousand people, that just see, screams to me just infighting. Do you do you think something like that, like a decentralized walkable city of a thousand people, that everything they need is kind of within this location, is is something that has a viable, you know, chance of success? I think it's somewhat a generational thing. Your generation and Gen Z behind you, I think, is going to, you know, be more cooperative and want want more conveniences that they don't have to drive mm-hmm. to. So mm-hmm. I think this whole walkability thing is going to only get more, in, you know, usable. Mm-hmm. The counter 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 to that, of course, is the is the cost of things. Mm-hmm. So. You know, are people willing to live in much smaller environments to, and pay more for those conveniences? Mm-hmm. The question is, how far will that have? You know, how far will you take that? The the pandemic kind of blew blew that idea out of the water for a while mm-hmm. because people got real. You know, human beings need to need to be social, and they they felt like they were locked up in their three hundred square foot apartment and <laughs> couldn't get out, and go, you know, do things. Good to have dinner at the restaurant. They couldn't shop. They couldn't go places. And mm-hmm. so there is a point where that that doesn't work. But as long as we're able to physically be with each other, then I think yes, I think uh, walkability will continue to become a tenant mm-hmm. of develop development in the future. So there, as I said, there's those are the two counter forces: mm-hmm. the health, health, and uh, and and cost. Right. So we'll see how that plays out over time. That's yeah. Interesting. I'm curious if this is, these trends are more cyclical than we think. And it's just like a, a 50 year trend of going into the city and back to the suburbs, into the city, back to the suburbs, just to be well, different. I think an overarching issue, of course, is climate change and mm-hmm. the concern that, you know, you start taking more green fields away. You cause more and more carbon issues, which mm-hmm. affects the atmosphere, which has long-term impacts on human civilization. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think pre- preservation of nature and, and allowing for more of a free flow of carbon with, you know, our, with the natural environment is going to be an important uh, aspect that we didn't even think about in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Mm-hmm. Wasn't even part of the, the thought process. Mm-hmm. You know, people would look around when I was a kid and you'd say, you know, don't litter and don't don't do certain things like smoking and all that. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, there's inherent, it's ugly. It doesn't look right. Well, it was more than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it turns out. You know, so you know, in your gut, you knew it was wrong, but until the science was really uncovered, you didn't really know why long-term, what the long-term issues are. So I think we're being more cognizant of that and that therefore mm-hmm. we'll have some longer, better-term in, impact. Yeah, and, and it sounds like Bob's NEYA is also thinking that way. I think he he yes. mentioned that ESG is a, a big focus and they were the yes. leaders of walkable cities and walkable developments, and they want to be the leaders of ESG. So <clears throat> I do think he's thinking that way. And it's, it's great to hear that those that are innovating in the space are also thinking about innovating uh, in the ESG space as well. So mm-hmm. it was good to hear that. Um, I know you asked him to read the Peter Kaufman multidisciplinary approach to thinking, approach to thinking which it, it sounded like he enjoyed. And I think based on his background and his photography hobby and musical interests, he probably has a multidisciplinary approach to thinking. Yes. Wanted That's to why give, I again, asked give, you, give you the Florida. I know you, you really like that, that speech as I, as I do as well. So I just wanted to let, let yes. you riff on it. Yeah. I will say to the listeners, please listen to that speech or read it. Um, and take what he says and and stop and think about it because it's not just something to oh that's nice it's it's really a, an impactful philosophy the idea of going first and taking initiative with people and overcome your internal you know your voice and your voice what if what if he thinks I'm a bad person or what if he thinks or she thinks you know I mean if people would take the initiative. He suggests that, and Peter talks about in the speech, that 95% of the people are good people and want and want to be, be nice. And even the 5% of people that aren't, I think, are either having a bad day. Very few have evil from, you know, the get-go. Mm-hmm. So you just have to think that most people, when when you express, you, you take the initiative to reach out to them. They'll they'll be grateful and 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 willing and and eager mm-hmm. to to respond. So that's the one thing he he emphasized, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and the other one is the, you know, just well, the one he didn't really talk about it as much, but the dogged incremental aspect of change that things over time it just takes longer than you think, mm-hmm. and just be very you know methodical. And to take in a lot more than what is immediately in front of you, a much broader perspective about things, and to have a discipline, as he talks about the three buckets he he goes to in his speech about, you know, the universe, the planet, and the human race, Mm -hmm. those three buckets. And if you absorb all those things and look at life that way, 
you'll have a much better perspective about looking and making decisions about things. They also brought up the Jim, Jim Collins book, Good to Great. I know we've discussed that and the flywheel and just constantly uh, essentially just making small changes until you get the flywheel, which more or less is the compounding interest idea. Did you want to discuss that at all? Or yeah, well, that's a famous philosophy of, of, mm-hmm. of, his, of Jim Collins, the whole good to great hedgehog versus the fox thought process, which is, you know, just deliberate, repetitive, good process. And when they started their townhouse development business, they said, you know, their first project in Alexandria, he talks about, and I actually remember when they built it in the early 90s. It was unique. It was different, but they had pretty strong success. Although he said he made no money because the financing structure was such he had to pay his his lender, his partner, all the money. Yeah. I remember the CIG people that he did the deal with because I remember structuring deals with them. And they were, it was not the the most favorable for the developer, but it, it got things financed at the time. But they learned from that, but they also learned that if we continue to do this process, the success in the marketplace is strong. So they, they, they figured it out. Mm-hmm. Collins talks <clears throat> about that in the book. He uses Walgreens as an example and other companies that did things repetitively well. Mm-hmm. Southwest Airlines, various companies they cite in the book. And so the flywheel is the idea that at a, you start up. And the flywheel takes is a tremendous amount of effort initially, but once the, once the thing gets moving, it becomes easier and easier over time to to, mm-hmm. to pull that push that flywheel along. Well, Amazon was built on that, so yeah. it's a pretty successful <laughs> process to get it done. It's hard to find more successful uh, business strategy than Amazon yeah. over over the last four thirty years. Yeah, it's, it's uh, when you have a, a long enough time frame and you're, you're consistent, it's easy to see a lot of these, these gains pay off. Yeah, yeah, the real estate development business is, is not the easiest way to do that <laughs> right? Uh, because there are just so many things that come up. It's hard <clears throat> to replicate a process on every deal mm-hmm. because of the, the nature of the of the complexity of things that come up in that process but they they figured out a process for townhouses in the way they do them that was rep, rep, re, repeatable so mm-hmm. you know it's interesting yeah <clears throat> i thought it was interesting i think he said it was hyattsville where they did a project that i, I don't think the the returns were favorable but he said he drives by it every all the time and really likes what they did and he sees the benefit it provided to the community. I, I've always kind of thought that real estate's a really interesting industry because even though you can have a failure, it's like a net positive for the world. Not to get too deep, but even if you know you build a beautiful building and it doesn't, your returns aren't aren't great. You still put that building there, and I think the community benefits and it. Everyone can feed off of it. Just wanted to get your take on that. He he kind of brings up that idea when he drives by his, I want to say it was the Hyattsville location. Yes, but, it was Hyattsville. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just want to get your take on that. Yeah. Community impact is, is a part of their mantra and part of their mission statement. 
And, you know, so it isn't always financial success that, that, that leads to a successful project. It's community impact. It's long-term viability. And sometimes you do something that doesn't necessarily reward you financially, but has longer, you know, more sustainable impact on, on the community. That's the thing about real estate development that is maybe different than other things. You have something that is a physical object that, that remains there for 30, 40 years sometimes that has impact on a community, physical impact. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're trading bonds and stocks, you're not going to get a physical impact from the, from yeah. the, from the, this, the money that you just collected. Just whatever, ca- whatever cash you have to invest in whatever you're going to invest in next. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, so it's, you know, that's the, in my, and I'm going to get philosophical as well. I think real estate is a business that has societal impact that's long lasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love it so much because it takes the aspects of communication, finance, and design and, and, and physical impact on, on a community. So it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a phenomenal process. Mm-hmm. Yes. For, for civilization. I think that's why I also like it because it's the perfect blend of finance, engineer, <laughs> architecture, design, all in one. And you're you're kind of juggling 50 different hats and teams to come together for one single product. Exactly. And you're you're managing quite quite different personalities from the construction to the design team. And it could be in the same room or you know, in the same day when you're having these interactions. It's just, I mean, it's super interesting and always keeping you on your toes. The only thing that's more complicated than that is dealing with medicine in the human body, mm-hmm. in my view. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, real estate development is just as, is, is the next most complicated thing to do, just about, <laughs> right. except maybe building a rocket ship or some yeah. multifaceted uh, uh, product that uh, mm-hmm. takes tremendous effort. But anyway. Yeah. Anything else, Colin? That's basically all I had. And I don't know if you can, my baby's crying in the background, so I, I probably have to tap in and help out there. <laughs> but last thing is the uh, Grateful Dead. Are you a deadhead? I, I I know you said you ran into him at a concert. Might not, be something that not didn't like know about he you. is. Not as yeah. much. I mean, I enjoy their music, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not an addict to it. I mean, I, I'm much, uh, I'm a pretty diverse music I mean, I like mm-hmm. jazz. I like classical. I like the only thing I don't like is hip hop. But you know, mm-hmm. that's a generational thing to some extent. <laughs> but you know, he and I are similar in age. He might be a little younger than me, but we love rock and roll. And so I was. I saw him at uh, Wolf Trap at the Dark mm-hmm. Star Orchestra concert, and mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to get orchestra pit seats as he he did. So I saw I him there. Yeah, it was pretty cool. He was yeah. in a dead. He was in a tie-dyed T-shirt and into it. <laughs> and, uh, That's great. He said for the 20th anniversary of his firm, they had Dark Star Orchestra perform, which is a large mm-hmm. group. It's yeah. like seven or eight pieces of you know players. You know, for a small crowd, that's a loud. That's a loud orchestra. That's a loud concert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So. So, but he's an artist. He, mm-hmm. take, he brings art to the table, you know, his photography interest and his musical mm-hmm. interest. So he's, it's interesting. It's, he's analogous to Yolanda Cole, who we mm-hmm. interviewed last time. 
yeah. from that perspective. He has an artistic bent to him. He wanted to be a professional photographer. So, and his father said, no, no, you don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Another thought I had, again, not to get too deep, but I feel like photographers see value in, in something that many people just overlook. And as, as someone who gets involved in like a land purchase and you can see what a piece of land can become. I'm trying, maybe I'm trying too hard to draw a correlation between his photography skills and his, you know, redevelopment development skills, but that's just well, one thought I had. Imagine, seeing, yeah, imagine, a, seeing an yeah. image that other people can't see. Right. It's imagining things. Mm-hmm. It means to have an image. Let me get that shot just right. So he's got to get the right light, the right angle, the right speed of aperture, all the different things. If you've done photography, you know, it's, there's complexity to it. And, and that's the way he is with development. So he wants to get the right, you know, architecture, design, appearance, physical nature of it. It's obviously more complicated. Real estate development is more complicated than putting a, a, a shot together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are books by, you know, you think of somebody like Ansel Adams, who was a famous mm-hmm. photographer. And he has explanations as to how he frames his, and it takes him sometimes a full day just to get a shot just right. So, you know, at a small, much smaller scale, photography has very similar organizational aspects to it, which is interesting. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all I had. Anything you wanted to hit on? No, except thank you listeners for joining us today. And I hope you got a lot out of this episode with Bob and come back perhaps in two weeks. It might be a little bit longer this time because I'm going to be taking a week off uh, in late late April. So hopefully we'll see you uh, in May with our, our next episode. So thank you for joining us. Thank you.